Welcome and uh, glad to have you here. We are beginning a new series here in Equipping Hour. We just wrapped up our Marriage and Family series last week and uh, we're beginning a new one. It's called How to Change and in a moment I'll give you a little bit more about what we're going to cover and how we're going to approach it. Uh, But let's start by praying and asking for God's help. Uh, God, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for the joy of being redeemed in Christ and being brought into union with him so that we are his and he is ours and all of his saving benefits and all of his fellowship, all of his fullness is our permanent possession. God, everyone who's trusted in him owns this, but we struggle to see what that entails and what it means for our future and for our lives today. We confess that we often are making use of such a small fraction of the fullness and the grace that's available to us in Christ. And we, um, we thank you that you mean to grow us. You mean to sanctify us and to give us the joy of being made more like Jesus and, and more joyful. And so we pray that this series would be useful to that end, that we as your church would continue to um, receive your word with, uh, with humble hearts and with alert minds, and that you'd give me faithfulness and clarity to teach these things in a way that's truly helpful to all who hear. God, you know where each one of us is in our lives. You're, you're the good shepherd, and you know exactly what each sheep is facing. Um, you know the challenges and the joys and the, uh, and the struggles and the sins, and we uh, commit ourselves again to you and ask that you would do good things in our lives for your glorious purposes. Uh, so bless our time of learning today and this whole series to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to ask you a question. If you have been a Christian for five years or more, I want you to think back about the you of five years ago. Um, if you haven't been a Christian for five years, just adjust as needed, maybe three years or whatever. Think back five years and consider your walk with Christ and the quality of your life. Think about your holiness, your godliness, the, the fruitfulness in Christ that your life was producing, um, or the lack of it. And uh, maybe just take a moment, I'm give us all a moment, not going to solicit you to share your answers, but just to jot down maybe some thoughts about ways that you think you have changed, and maybe some ways that you haven't changed with regard to these things um, in the last five years or so. And I'm specifically thinking of growth that has occurred or maybe areas of growth where you feel like you haven't seen a lot of growth and things haven't changed so much in the last five years. Does that make sense? Maybe just a couple minutes to reflect and maybe jot down answers. Maybe there's some ways you feel like you've gone backward. <laughs> you can jot those down as well. Give a, give a few more moments for this.
Well, I would guess that some of these exist, both of these things probably exist in all our lives. There's probably some ways that we can all identify that, yeah, I've seen growth. I really think that I've been becoming more mature in Christ. We're going to talk a little bit more about what all this means, but spiritual progress. I've seen it. And then there's probably some other areas where we feel frustration at, at like, I haven't seen a lot of change. I still feel the same struggles happening over and over. Um, or maybe there has been some, but it just really, it's really frustrating how little you've seen change. Or again, maybe there's new issues that you didn't used to struggle with. And now suddenly they're, five years later, they're, they're big problems. And you go, man, I didn't even have this problem before. Um, and some of us might be more inclined to be a little bit more optimistic about our spiritual progress and our spiritual situation and, and say like, no, I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well. God's growing me. I think things are good. And others might maybe have an in, inclination to be more pessimistic and more thinking, wow, I just keep having these problems and nothing's really changing. Um, and I will say that how we feel about it may not necessarily be the best indicator of how we're actually doing. Um, but we've all had the experience of feeling like maybe we're treading water as Christians, um, where it feels like um, I am maybe not seeming to see a lot of change um, in my, my spiritual journey, in my growth in Christ. Um, we may find that we've struggled with some of the same sins year after year, and maybe we thought we had them beat or we thought we were making progress, and then something happened that helped us realize, ah, oh, it's like back to the same old thing. Um, Perhaps you can see this more clearly in other people's lives around you. Of course, I want to start with us thinking about ourselves because it would be hypocritical if we just said, let's think about how everyone else isn't growing, right? We, this series is going to be primarily about God addressing our own hearts. Um, and it's from that standpoint that it is going to be. There's going to be applicability to how we, how we address others and help others. But you may have seen this in others where it's like, I don't really see a lot of growth there in that person either. So... This is kind of the problems we're addressing in this course. Um, I would guess that most of us in here have a pretty good sense of kind of the doctrine of the Christian life. In at least its broad outlines that, that we've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. And we now live with his indwelling Holy Spirit. And we're on a journey of increasing holiness as we're being perfected in cooperation with the Holy Spirit as we move toward being finally glorified in the end. And the Christian life is thus a, a process after we um, receive Christ by faith, we're instantaneously justified, fully justified, but then there's this incremental process of growth and maturity in godly qualities of life, and, we, and we're also turning away from sin at the same time. I think most of us have a pretty good sense. That's what the Christian life, that's what what's called progressive sanctification is. But even though we know this theology, I suspect that what's harder for a lot of us is to see it happening in our lives, uh, in the real world. Uh, we come to church regularly. Um, we try to be disciplined with spiritual practices like reading the Bible and praying. Um, and yet we might find ourselves bumping into some of the same old problems and the same old struggles and going, why is this, why is it doesn't seem like much is happening? Um, some of us may not be pursuing these practices very, very uh, devotedly. And you might also be noticing you're not seeing a lot of change in your life. But what's going wrong? Uh, that's what we're dealing with in this series. We're trying to address in this course um, how to put the, that biblical doctrine of the Christian life, of progressive sanctification, to work in very practical ways uh, to, to see change, to see God actually changing us. Um, 
Now, regarding the approach of this course, it's based on a, a book. It's really a, a, a biblical counseling book by two guys named Tim Lane and Paul Tripp. It's called How to Change. How no, How People Change. Our course is How to Change. How to Change One Word, right? <laughs> Couldn't plagiarize their title. So, <laughs> How People Change is the name of the book, and it's a biblical counseling book. Um, but if you read it, it's not really talking about how to counsel other people, at least not at all primarily. It's really about the very thing I just laid out. It's about how do people actually change and grow in Christ in our Christian lives. But the idea is that it's to equip the reader to see these dynamics at work in our own hearts and kind of understand what God's doing and how his word and his spirit are actually changing us, which of course is going to have all kinds of applicability in our relationships with one another secondarily. So um, I hope it has that effect for us, that first of all, we're thinking about what's going on in our own hearts. What impedes growth and what is God doing to overcome those impediments and how can we cooperate with him and, and grow, actually become more like Christ and cooperate with his spirit. And uh, when we are learning that ourselves, those are the very lessons that equip us most profoundly to then speak into each other's lives. Um, really, uh, the more I just am a pastor and do ministry, the more I realize like the things, if I ever meet with you to counsel you or something, I'm usually drawing insights, not only from scripture, but how I've seen God use scripture in my own life to deal with sin and so on and trials or whatever. So you're being equipped to grow and to help other brothers and sisters to grow. So that's why uh, it's a biblical counseling book, but first about counseling yourself. And <laughs> um, So that's what we're going to do. We're, gonna, um, we're going to move basically through this book. It's a, uh, adapted. Uh, but I want to say just one note about kind of the how to change thing, which is progressive sanctification, um, we tend to really want to know, like, what's the method? I, 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 see, I hear people ask me that question. It's like, what's the method? Like, I've got the pieces. I've got the Bible. I've got the church. I've, you know, I've got prayer, all this stuff. It's like, but what's the, the, the thing I got to do? Like the secret sauce thing. And I don't think it's helpful to think about this book that way, that this is like the secret method to actually growing. I hope that as we read this, a lot of these pieces will be familiar. It's all very biblical things. It's, it's not some kind of man-made system. that, uh, it, And it's not so much like a method that if you just turn this key, suddenly it'll happen. It's stuff about like how the Bible deals with our hearts. But it's basically just giving us a set of eyes to, to understand dynamics of sin and God's grace and how we live in God's grace and see growth. So um, any kind of man-made book that's like, this is it, like you didn't know how to grow, this is the spiritual secret. We're actually about to talk about that, like that's, you know, like alarm bells. And sometimes as Christians, especially in a, in a very technological age, a modern age where we, we think in terms of machines and we think in terms of gears <laughs> and we even use those metaphors for our minds, like I'm processing, that's like a computer metaphor we use for our minds that we tend to over, we tend to look for more like methodological and, and me mechanistic things. Like what's the, how do I code it right so that I'm going to grow? It's messier than that. But it's also beautiful the way God grows us using the, 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 the various means of grace that he's given us. But that said, there are some things we need to learn and can learn about how he actually does this. But don't be looking for like the three-step method or whatever. It's not, it's not that, it's not like that. Any questions? That's it for the course approach, kind of introduction to the course. Any thoughts or, or questions or feedback about just what we've covered so far?
Does change include a form of balance in a way? That's the question. It, it could. What would you mind elaborating on what you have in mind? Mm-hmm. So you're talking about like different dimensions of, of human existence, like spiritual health, physical health, things like that. Yeah, um, they're all important. I would say God, uh, you know, God made us as whole beings in his image, and all of that matters. Our, our relationships, like you know, our social, you know, our mental, all of it matters, and it's all interrelated. Um, so we don't want to say like, forget your physical health, for, you know, we're, we don't want to, so in that sense, we don't want to be unbalanced in how we approach, like, what it means to be a healthy human being. But, uh, but we are, the Bible is dealing with godliness, which has to do with our hearts and our relationship with God and our worship. We're going to learn a lot about that. And that will have impact on all kinds of it, social, mental, physical health. But it's not, God's word isn't presenting itself as the one-stop shop for everything we need to know as human beings. We're actually about to talk about that in just a moment. So it's not like, if you just read the Bible, you don't have to think at all about your physical health or whatever. It's, but it is, it is all interrelated. Does that help? Oh, it's somewhat, yeah, that's a good, good question. It could get real, real uh, we're going to have a whole series on that. <laughs> yeah, John. Do you believe if you dig in deep and down into what we're really treasuring on the heart, what we're idolizing, but it makes us even motivated to do the change or mm-hmm. not to do the change? Yeah. You're you're kind of uh, you're kind of cutting to the quick there, John. We're going to be dealing with the things our hearts treasure. We're going to be digging into that very much. That's a huge part of what makes us tick as as human beings, and what makes us change, and what makes us not change. Gary, did you have? You don't have to answer this, but how did you guys? How did you come up with the idea of teaching this particular course? This what? Yeah. Did you, you as a group, or is this your? How do, we, how do we come up with this? this is a great, uh, just to put it, how do we come up with this series idea? Well, there's a few factors. We try to, we try to kind of um, give us a, a balance. We say a sprinkling of, like, Bible theology and practical stuff. Um, actually, Matt Wolf, I'll, I'll, if, you, if you like the course, you can thank Matt Wolf. <laughs> if you don't like it, you can blame me. No, Matt came and suggested something kind of like this. It, was, it wasn't all the exact parameters, but it was something like, hey, just, it's really helpful to think through this. We have a lot of doctrine, and there's a lot of value in going, like, how do we actually change? And I think there's a sense that Matt has experienced, and I've, you know, it's like, we can know a lot and not necessarily see that, here's that metaphor I just panned, the gears kind of catching, and things actually happening, if that's a fair representation of, and some resources that Matt's found really helpful, and it got us kind of talking and thinking as elders about what could be useful. So did you want to respond to that? Yeah, I don't know if you I, uh, did. I, did I represent you fairly? Uh, you know, we we have a, we have a lot of theology and doctrine that we're yeah. well equipped and taught on, but I think sometimes there's a how do we practically work that out in our day to day lives? You know, yeah. those things are touched on, but yeah. I thought a more focused time would be very beneficial. Yeah, you know, digging into our hearts a little bit, letting yeah. the word do its work. Yeah, um, and dealing with some issues that are that we may skirt at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, just like what John said, exactly. Well said. And think about it in terms of what the Word of God is given for, 2 Timothy 3, 16, for it's, it's God-breathed, it's inspired by God, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And those are basically 
both positive and negative addresses to our knowledge and practice. And that last one, training in righteousness, is positively addressing our practice. And training is something that we don't, equipping is a good, maybe synonym for, guess what we're, we're here for, equipping. It's not something we necessarily have a ton of time in the pulpit to get into the weeds of like, how does this look in your life? We, we try to do some of that, but there's a lot of heart kind of digging stuff that we're hoping to, this is very much like training in righteousness for God's people. How does it look to, to walk in the Christian life, essentially, with regard to these things. So, good. Good questions and good thanks, Matt, for that. So, let's go and start talking about what our authors call the gospel gap. And I want you to consider Keith. I tried to pick a name that wouldn't, like, remind us of anybody around here. I had to work. I had to. I really didn't want to put anybody on the spot. Uh, if your name is Keith, I'm so sorry. Um, Keith. Poor Keith. He, uh, Keith has been a Christian since high school. Um, he's always been interested in the Bible and theology, and he's read a lot over the years. He's learned a lot. He's sort of a hobbyist kind of theologically and listens to podcasts and stuff. And he sometimes takes opportunities to teach in his church, like, you know, equipping hour type things. Um, and he knows a lot. People know of him as somebody who knows a lot, and they will often ask him questions. And, and they'll think of him as someone who's kind of, kind of mature in Christ because, uh, because he knows a lot. And uh, he's been around a lot. And they, they, they know him. Uh, but at home, his, his personal life and his home life don't necessarily measure up with that impression. He has a tendency to be irritable with his family when things aren't going his way. Um, he's not known for being kind and compassionate and patient toward others. Maybe he's known for knowing a lot, but not necessarily being the most tender-hearted person. Um, and over the years, his marriage has grown cold. His relationship with his wife is not really that great. They, for, for a while, it's really just raising the kids together, that's sort of holding them together. And uh, he's discontented with many facets of his life, uh, of his personal life. He spends a lot of time thinking about sports and spending money on new tech, things that kind of excite him because there's just not a lot going on to, to excite him in his life around him. What is going on with Keith? What about all those years of theological knowledge? How is it translating to filling him with Christ-like, kind, patient love. It's not. <laughs> we can see that. Of course, we have this omniscient, you know, like, view of Keith's heart. And we say, oh, Keith. But, I mean, maybe some of this might resonate with you about your own life. Um, why are my relationships such a mess? Why does my heart keep being distracted by all these worldly things? Um, it seems like maybe the years that I've been a Christian, the years I've been in church, the, the amount of stuff I've learned doesn't necessarily seem to be tracking with the character of my life, um, with the activities of my heart. And to learn more about what's going on here, uh, our authors introduce what they call the gospel gap. And so to learn more about it, let's look at Second uh, Peter 1, uh, verses 3 to 9. I'd like if someone would be willing to read Second Peter 1, verses 3 to 9. Yeah, Greg, go for it. <coughs> 2 Peter 1, 3-9. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Thank you. So I hope we're all here, because I'm going to ask a few questions about this, this paragraph, basically. Now, first is, what resources does Peter say God has given to us? Everything we need for life and godliness. Yeah. Um, I think it's probably a good way of putting that life and godliness is that it's, it's saying a godly life. Was it David? Is that your name? Yeah. David asked about physical health. Peter's not claiming everything we need for every aspect of human existence. We need to know things about our vocation or how to like procure food that isn't in the Bible. So it's not saying everything that a human being could ever need. The idea is everything we need for a godly life, a life that honors and pleases God. And everything, so there's this blanket, like everything we need for that, which is totally right, Lori. What are some of the things that that might entail, even based on uh, the, verse, the, the, the stuff around that? It says everything that pertains to life and godliness. What are some, deep, some specifics about what he's given us? So you're looking at some of these character qualities. Yeah. I would say those are great. Those are maybe more like the stuff that life and godliness will look like, or godly life will, will entail. Quality. We're going to get there. Is there anything else he has given us? Yeah, Rhonda. Mm-hmm. Good. So it's his power. It's his promises. Those are really good finds. Knowledge of him. That's kind of the channel through the knowledge of him. So it's by knowing him, we kind of tap into his power. And we enjoy his promises. Faith, which is, I think, kind of implied in knowledge in this case. Unless it's more explicit somewhere else. Fullness of his glory and excellence. Yeah. So his glory, his, his excellence, his life, his, his blessedness of himself, his fullness as, as the infinite God. We've, in a sense, tapped into that in union with him. Which is also, he says, we've become partakers of the divine nature which can make us nervous, like, wait, are we saying we become God? No, it's not erasing the creature-creator distinction, but there is a real sense in which we are in union with God, participating in his nature because we have Christ and his Holy Spirit. So it's like, wow, all of God's fullness we're like pl plugged into. It's a weak metaphor, whatever. But all that God is is now ours, and all this resource for a godly life. So those are great finds. And then and then Sherry started us on, what does a godly life look like? And that's kind of the subsequent verses. And you said self-control. So given that we're, we're like tapped in to this rich vein of, of power and life in God himself, what does the godly life that flows from that look like? Virtue, which I think it could be like excellence. In some ways, all these are virtues if we think of them as like character quality, godlike character qualities. But yeah, it says virtue. Self-control, we heard. You guys see them. It's fish in a barrel. Let's hear it. <laughs> They're right there. Not, 
What was that? Steadfast. Steadfastness, knowledge, discernment. Was that there? Yep. Love, right. Godliness. Oh, yeah. Lori had said faith earlier. Faith is there. So these are these qualities that basically are supposed to blossom from our lives when we're connected, we're participating in the divine nature through Christ, through the knowledge of Christ. All this stuff, God's like, he's saying, God, you are fully supplied to produce a life like this. This is life and godliness, or a godly life. Um, Okay, fine, good enough. Um, What would verse 8 say is our verdict if we're not increasing these qualities? You might say, well, I don't necessarily see myself increasing in a lot of these qualities. Brotherly affection and knowledge and and self-control. What? Ineffective and unfruitful. So this is idea, if you say unfruitful, what kind of metaphor is that? What, what realm are we kind of operating in? Agriculture, kind of like you're a plant that isn't yielding a lot. Okay, so we might say, look, there's, there's plenty of water coming. There's, there's plenty of sunlight, but there's not a lot of fruit coming out in this plant. There's not a lot of yield. Something's wrong. You have the resources available, but you're not producing the things that those are meant to produce. Yeah, that, that's, that's good. Ineffective and unfruitful. And that's kind of, kind of like Keith, right? Keith is kind of, he's a Christian. He's tapped into the fullness of God, and he knows a lot of this stuff. Keith could, could teach a lesson on this. But it's like, but we don't necessarily see these qualities increasing in Keith's life. And so Peter would say, Keith, you are, to some degree, you're being ineffective and unfruitful in your Christian life. Okay. What does verse 9 point us to to explain why do people become ineffective and unfruitful? That's kind of the big question of this whole series. Like, why do people become ineffective and unfruitful? They lack these qualities. Well, that's kind of more describing, like, you're not like this. You're not. Yeah, yeah. But, but I'd say he even goes a level underneath. What was that? Forgetting the gospel. Does someone else say that? They've, they've become blind and nearsighted, so you, you're not seeing reality. And specifically, You've forgotten that you were cleansed from your former sins. That's a, that's a, a brief reference to all Christ has done in redeeming us in the gospel. He's cleansed us of sin. He has, all the things I said earlier, he's uh, rescued us from the domain of darkness. He's brought us into the kingdom of light. He's caused us to be adopted into God's family. And he's filled us with his spirit. And he's promised us an eternal inheritance of glory and resurrection. You forget you've gotten all this. So you don't bear fruit. You are tapped into God's fullness, but you're not bearing fruit because you forget what Christ has done for you. That's kind of Peter's thesis here of, of, this, of this paragraph. Um, and that's, that's why Keith's happened. That's, why, and that's what we probably all experience to some degree. And we don't want to be so simplistic as to say you're either totally fruitless and you're totally, totally forgotten the gospel or you're completely not we're all probably experiencing varying degrees of this. Some of us, this may really capture what's going on in your life, but we can all at least relate at various times with, yeah, the, the gospel is not connecting, and I'm not seeing a lot of this stuff in my life. And so the answer that Peter draws our attention to is gospel, what I would call gospel forgetfulness. You don't forget what God has done for you in Christ. Um, he has taken away the judgment of God from you, he set you free, all these things. Titus 2.14 describes Jesus' saving death as uh, that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
He gave himself to purify us from our lawlessness or sin to make us belong to him so that we could be zealous for good works, so that we could be synchronizing with Peter. We could partake the divine nature and through his precious great promises and his power, we could start being rich in these good works and these virtues, these qualities that Peter talks about. So Christian, if you trust in Jesus, he gave his life to purify you for this end so that you could receive God's promises and bear the fruit of a godly and virtuous life. So Matt. Uh, what are we being unfruitful in? Because uh, I think Second Peter mm-hmm. highlights something very specific. Okay. Versus what you're talking about, Keith, being unfruitful. What do you uh-huh. mean by Keith being unfruitful? Versus what I see Peter here focusing on. Tell, tell us what you see Peter focusing on. Um, well, he starts with his divine power granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Mm-hmm. And then later on he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Yeah. So is Keith's problem a lack of the great question, is Keith's problem a lack of the knowledge of God? I think that when he says... He keeps, is, that, is that his lack of fruit, right? No. It's not that he doesn't know enough. But knowledge is complicated. He may not know it in the right way. But when he says unfruitful in the knowledge of God, what I read that as saying is the knowledge of God is not producing the fruit that it should. And knowledge is both factual and relational. So I would say maybe we could say something about he may know a lot of stuff about God, but he's not knowing God relationally um, and according to the gospel. So he might be thinking of a lot of truths about the, the doctrine of God, but he's not thinking in terms of where do I stand with this God? What has this God done for me? So it's not like he's totally fine in knowledge, but knowing a lot of theology doesn't automatically mean this isn't going to be a problem. Yeah, great. You had something to say. Well, just another word for that is experiential. Yeah. He, he doesn't have deep, real experiential knowledge, and that yeah. has to be explained, but just mm-hmm. you said it hasn't translated into life. Right, right. His own relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see, I mean, it's I've been kind of living here with the Gospel of John because it's some work I'm doing. And it's interesting, you see people that know certain things about Jesus that don't know Jesus. Nicodemus comes and says on chapter 3, he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. He's right. <laughs> For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's right. And a few verses later, he's like, you don't get it. You don't believe, Jesus says to Nicodemus. He's, he can say certain true things about Jesus. He does not know Jesus. So, yeah, there's a difference. There are different kinds of knowledge. We need to maybe, that's a good thing to distinguish. Yeah, good, good point, Matt. Yeah, Gary. Yeah. I found for me that that has helped me as I study the Bible. I I'm looking. What are these? Tr- and that's, I've got a bunch of verses yeah. here that apply to. Oh, look at wow! Like I've I've been reading John and the fifth chapter of John, and, and I've read it many times. But when you look at that and what Jesus says about Himself, mm-hmm. well, if you recognize, wow, wait, this is. This is Jesus, not my good friend in heaven, but mm-hmm. this is the Savior. This is the, he's God. Mm-hmm. It really hits you when you 
at least for me, mm -hmm. to, to think about, okay, the true knowledge, really don't superficially look at these things, take time to what is this true knowledge mm -hmm. of God. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know, like yeah. the, 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 your version is standard. Yeah, and I haven't. It just says knowledge. Yeah. To me, true knowledge. It's like, that well, that's important. Anymore, yeah. I know, and know. I don't, that's a great, I haven't looked into that. I haven't looked into the Greek there, and I don't know why, if, if true is being distinguished from false, or kind of more like genuine, as opposed to some kind of more superficial. I don't know what, what that modifier, yeah. But that's a good, but it needs to be both. It needs to be factually true, doctrinally true, but it also needs to be genuine. And I, I think this, what he forgets is that he has been cleansed. It's sort of like this, like Greg said, it's experiential, like, I can know all these facts out here, but I remember what has God done for me in Christ? Yeah, we're going to say something soon. Kind of said is, you know, it's a connection of mind and heart, mm -hmm. and they go together, mind, heart, and soul. It's a, it, we're a package. Yeah. And you know, I can, I can not be married and give a lot of marriage advice as if I mm -hmm. know. I learned it from a book. Yeah. But until I'm married, I really don't understand the depth mm -hmm. of the issues of marriage. So I feel that way about Scripture. Yeah. That you know, and the the wisdom comes from life experiences, yeah. and then putting into practice yeah. what Christ has told us. Yeah, it's really kind of truth, objective truth, and experience kind of wed together, and then as we walk, we can see better, and we can, yeah understand better for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to keep going. I love the thoughts this is firing off, and I love how you're thinking actively. This is great. I hope you do this in the next 11 weeks. Uh, this is really great. But to move on and to just explain a little bit more this gospel gap. So thinking about the gospel, I think a lot of us are pretty clear on what the gospel means for our past. If we're a Christian, what is the gospel? What did the gospel do to your past? Think about when you believed, if you can remember when that was or even know when that was. What did Jesus do? You might tell your testimony. So you just said testimony. You might tell your testimony. What did Jesus do? He brought me from darkness into life, made me a new creature. I believed I was forgiven. We can talk a lot of past tense about the gospel. And then what do we talk future tense about the gospel too, don't we? And even when we present the gospel to people, we'll say, you know, you can be forgiven of sin. And then what's kind of the, the final end of it all? Go to heaven, yeah, we, and, and, and we can expand on that. We get to enjoy God's presence forever in, a, in, in glory and in resurrection and in, in perfection. Um, that's the future. And I think we, um, we tend to think a lot about the gospel per, in terms of our timeline, our own timeline in the past, and we might think about it in the future. Those are both really good things. But then, like, what, is, what about the now? This is what we can call the gap. What is the gospel supposed to be doing now? It's not just something that, oh, I got in. And now I'm in the waiting room waiting for heaven. Um, but it's interesting what Peter says is your problem is you are now forgetting the past work of the gospel. Uh, both in history, like what Christ did 2,000 years ago, but also your own having been cleansed, your own experience of receiving Christ. That there's a way in which that past is supposed to reach into your present and, and change your every day of your life. And actually, we're going to see, I hope, that there's a lot of ways that the future reaches back into your present because of the gospel. And the hope of what's assured to us in Christ actually reaches back and purifies us as he is pure. The borrow from 1 John. So this is something that we may struggle with. We think of the gospel as something past and future, but what about now? How does the gospel change us now? How does it inhabit our hearts and lives now? That's kind of what this whole thing is going to be about. Um, so Keith has been cleansed of his sin. He's trusted in Jesus. He's awaiting heavenly inheritance. He sings about these truths. 
the cross, his cleansing, his future heavenly hope. He thinks about these truths every week in church. But this week, this series is about teaching Keith and you and me, how does that shape your today? How does that shape your life today and the, the landscape of our hearts and our lives? How do those, those resources that we have in Christ sh- change us now? Um, and so, really, I mean, we're going to just kind of increase in specificity here, but the idea is that to overcome gospel forgetfulness and so to take hold of the spiritual resources God has given us for godly lives in Christ, um, we need to know the gospel and how it shapes our lives. And then we get growing. It'll, it'll, it'll be the engine God uses to grow us. Um, bef- at, on that, any, any thoughts or feedback questions at this point? We're going to look at some false ways we, we might fill that gap, some, some things that we might put in, that, put in the now instead of the gospel to, to try to change. But any thoughts or anything? Okay. False ways of filling the gap. Before we talk about how to fill the gospel gap, we need to, we need to uh, identify some of the false solutions, and this is not exhaustive. There could probably be others identified. Maybe this will just get you thinking about may, maybe how some of these are happening in your life or others like it. Maybe, you, maybe there's something off this list. You go, that's, that's what I'm really going for, what, how I'm missing the mark. The first one is formalism, and we could just call this showing up and signing up. Um, this is when we measure spiritual, our spiritual um, condition or progress by how often we're in church and how involved we get. So Keith probably probably uh, give himself a lot of points in this category. Like, I serve very faithfully in, in, in some really key ways. I've been faithfully involved in church. Um, that means I'm, that is uh, an index that things are good. Um, legalism, which is some idea, some kind of performing for our standing with God. Um, this is when we place our security with God in our outward behavior. Um, mysticism would be some kind of living for emotional and spiritual highs. So this is when we're constantly searching for the next epic, exciting encounter with God. I like to call this the uh, I will never be the same again theology, which is literally like a song lyric that church, I mean, there are some churches, there's a theological system that, that thinks this way and they produce a lot of worship songs. And there's this idea of this, some epic encounter with God. And I'm going to go away like Moses with my face shining and like, It'll never be the same for me. All those old problems just were shed, uh, shed away. I just need, and then when we're like, hey, I'm seeing I'm in a rut. I'm not growing spiritually. What do I need? I need that worship experience, that encounter with God where I was like, ah, it's, you know, the glory's back, you know. A breakthrough. Yeah, that's, uh, and, and that's implicit. We might like accidentally think that way, but there are some places where that is actually taught very explicitly. Um, there's also activism. So this idea of zealously combating the world's evils, when we measure ourselves spiritually by the righteous causes that we get into uh, and throwing ourselves into activism. Um, there's theologyism, which maybe, this is another one, Keith, and maybe some of us um, experience, dry, a drive to master scripture and doctrine because we think that knowing a lot of these things, Bible and doctrine, equal being spiritually fruitful. Um, and there's what we could call psychologyism, which is, these are going to turn into non, non-words, kind of a word salad here. Psychologyism, 
looking for therapy and healing from Christianity. That you, what you primarily think, my problem is that I'm, I'm broken and I need fixing or I'm, like I'm empty and I need filling. That kind of, kind of therapeutic way of thinking about ourselves. I need healing kind of as the primary problem. There's also social dashism, not a political ideology here, um, but living for fellowship and acceptance in the church. Um, this is when we saturate ourselves in Christian relationships and uh, we operate and feel as though our spiritual condition is dependent on how satisfied we are with these relationships. If somebody snubs us or disappoints us, it feels like God is distant. When we're doing well socially, we're connected with others, it feels like God is favorable to us, that kind of thing. It's like our, our spiritual state is rising and falling on how our relationship's going. Now, I hope in a lot of these you heard it and were like, there's some truth in that, right? Like a lot of these are not bad at all. In fact, they're really good and necessary. Not all of them. But a lot of them, most of them are really good things. But the problem is that each one grasps at something that is good and makes it ultimate and makes it the thing that really will change you. The thing that really defines who you are. And that's the problem. They are appealing to various desires and various even rightfully understood needs, but they don't go deep enough. None of these things are really the heart of the issue. And unfortunately, a lot of us uh, might, might have tendencies to think that if I, can, if I can, you know, we ride one or two of these and say, if I can really just live there and go deeper into that, that's spiritual progress. And we're not, we're not digging into the heart of things. I remember a time in my life when I was, in a, I was in an environment where the activism thing was really big. It was in college. College Christians tend to, <laughs> tend to like to be this way. And the gospel was very small. And so I was measuring my spiritual life on like how many things, how many causes I was sinking myself into. And you know what? There's a lot of good causes Christians can concern themselves with. And there's a lot of big problems in the world that Christians can can, can bring in front of each other and say, if you really cared, you would do more for this. If you really cared, you'd do more for that. And I was like, I can't be a Christian. I can't care. There's not enough like, of me to care about all these things. And what I realized was missing was I forgot that I was cleansed of my former sins. I was not thinking about the Christian life in a gospel-centered way. I was just thinking about this activism way. There could be all kinds of examples in our lives where we, we've found this. We're doing this. Yeah, John. <laughs> mm-hmm. If your faith is dependent on these isms, mm-hmm. this re- results you right into the road down the road of Lord faith salvation. Yeah. Is these, yeah. There's no hope in that, no assurance in that. Yeah, these are various stripes kind of of, of some kind of merit based uh, assurance before God. And some of them more directly than others, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's, that was my experience. It was like, I can't do enough to be a Christian. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I knew the gospel. I was saying, I can't do enough to be a Christian. Like that, it was like, that's not right. That's not the gospel. Like, it's a, being a Christian is not about doing enough. That's, yeah, yeah. So those are some things that it could look like. It's sort of the power to change, the power to advance or progress spiritually. Um, and then now, kind of by contrast, we're going to look at five perspectives that how the gospel fills our now. And, and, and basically, we're going to look at the whole, start the whole course, looking in various ways at how to take the resources we have in Christ and plug that gap into our lives today and, and see God changing us. Um, 
And, and we, we can look at what these, these five what we call gospel perspectives that just maybe give us, give us a sense of how this is going to work. Emphases for, for how, the, how this... And I would basically say we're kind of giving the broad outlines of the solution, and then as we go, we're going to get more into the, into the weeds of how, of how it looks. But five gospel perspectives, five perspectives for how the gospel fills our now, fills that gap. One of them is the extent and gravity of our sin. So... Um, th- none of this is going to happen if we are superficial about sin. Um, what makes grace so meaningful is when we dig deep in our understanding of sin and engage with our sin with biblical realism, um, or else we will just forever be playing on the surface. So if we think of sin primarily as behaviors outwardly we do, especially like the, the sort of, you know, you know, people say, don't smoke or drink or chew or go, go with girls you do, that kind of thing. Um, there, and, and there are, there are, I'm thinking of like the Wesleyan Methodist tradition where they have, they have the view of perfectionism. You can be perfect in this Christian life. You can attain perfectionism. And we who don't believe that go like, how could, aside from biblical things, we go like, how could you possibly think you're perfect. Like, how could anyone possibly think that? But I think that in order to make that make sense of that, they tend to have a pretty superficial view of sin. If you think of sin as like the bad things I do outwardly, you might get to the point where you're like, I'm there. I did it. You know, like, I'm fully sanctified. But that's not a biblical realistic view of sin. That sin is, is so much more internal and deep in our hearts. And so it's like, yeah, if you want to just Tell yourself you're perfect. Yeah, just think about these superficial things. But if you want to actually change, and you want God to change you, you have to first see, like, where is sin actually happening? And how deep do the roots go? The second perspective is the centrality of the heart. And I'm already kind of alluding to this, but this gets underneath behavior to where change really happens. We're going to talk about this, but I think of Jesus in Mark 7 saying, it's out of the overflow of the heart that we do all these evil behaviors. Uh, these words that come from us, these, these actions that come from us, it is overflow of the heart. You can't reform that by outward things. It, it, it runs, it's like a fountain. It just goes the other way. It goes from in to out. So this is all going to, like John anticipated, it's all going to be about our hearts. And, of course, the biblical heart is not just our feelings. It's the whole inner us. It's feelings, thoughts, will, all that. It's, it's, and it's all, like Sue said, it's all pretty interconnected. Biblically speaking. Uh, the third one is the present benefits of Christ. We need to know what he's doing now. He's not just our savior emeritus who did a great thing for us a long time ago. Um, he is our ongoing savior. He's in us working his, his will and working his good things in us now on the basis of what he's already done. Uh, the fourth one is God's call to grow and change. Um, and someone like Keith, and I think maybe the longer we're a Christian, we might, we might uh, get, com- you know, the word complacent maybe, like take our eye off the ball and just kind of be like, no, I'm good. You know, like I got my routines. I got, you know, like, yeah, that's just how my wife and I relate to each other. You know, it's been 30 years. Nothing's going to change. You know, like um, we can get comfortable with just not growing in all kinds of ways. And just, and just the, to know this is a kind of pillar of what all we're doing is, God's, God's will for us is that these qualities are increasing and growing. That's what Second Peter said, increasing and growing throughout the whole Christian life. That the Christian life is a course of change. 
that God has called us to and he's equipped us for, okay? So that our author's right. From the time we come to Christ until the time we go home to be with him, God calls us to change. So one of the things that might be good groundwork for your, your life as you consider this course is just to maybe ask yourself, like, have I been defining my, my life purpose, my Christian life purpose this way? I'm sure there was a time when you did, when you're maybe a newer Christian and you're like, man, I got so much growth to do. And it may be that for, it's been a long time since you've actually thought about your, your life's vocation that way. Like God has called me to change in Christ. Um, and and uh, that, even that, just expecting that, that's what the Christian life needs to look like. And fifthly, a lifestyle of repentance and faith. And I just think, yeah, if God is calling us to keep changing, well, changing in some way means turning from one thing to another. And that's what repentance is. Repentance is turning from something that isn't God to God. And there's, of course, repentance is the first thing we do when we come to Christ. We repent and believe. It's really this kind of two sides of the same coin. Something that isn't trusting in Christ, to trusting in Christ, that's a turn. It necessarily implies a turn. And yes, that's the first call we give to every non-believer. Trust Jesus. Believe the gospel. Repent. But there's a sense in which that's little repentances are continuing to happen throughout the whole Christian life. Otherwise, there's no change. Turning, change and turning are just like the same thing. So a lifestyle of repentance and faith, the same things that got us into the gospel are the things, the same responses to the gospel that got us in are the responses to the gospel that keep us going. So those are five perspectives that are going to sort of frame everything we see in this course. Uh, Are there any thoughts, maybe additional ones that we could have said or thoughts or questions about what we've covered? Yeah. Just a quick thought on the whole thrust of continuing to grow and change yeah. and all bound up. It's interesting in Second Peter, he ends his letter with a call to grow in the grace and yeah. of Christ. And yeah, so 318. That's, that's, that's a really... thrust of his whole focus. Yeah, that's right. That's a good, a good point. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a, just a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Even against the backdrop of Peter's own experience. Yeah. Do you think Peter did some growing? <laughs> yeah. Peter, do you think Peter had to remember how he was cleansed from former sin? Denying Christ so, so, so blatantly, but still being equipped and being, having confidence to do ministry as an apostle because of Christ's restoration. Yeah, Zach and then uh, Garrett. Another thing the gospel does is it tells us who we actually are. Mm-hmm. And I think there's so many competing ideas, and even in what we're talking about here with all these isms, there's so many different competing ideas of who we are. Mm-hmm. And we can tend to want to decide that for ourselves or feel like we need to decide yeah. that for ourselves. Yeah. And the gospel tells us the reality of who we actually are, that we don't have to go and try to do all these things to define ourselves. We just have to live as we actually are. Yeah. That's so important. And that's one of those like unstated currents in our culture. I think maybe especially younger folks, but probably everybody this idea that it's your, it's your privilege and it's your responsibility to define yourself, to define your identity. And it's, it's presented as a freedom. It's actually a terrible burden. And the beautiful thing about, one of the beautiful things of the gospel is that, as 1 Corinthians 6 tells us, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Your identity as a human being and your identity as a child of God are fixed. It doesn't mean there's an individuality about us, but there's so much of a relief to come under the authority of Christ. I belong to Christ he tells me what I am. He tells me who I am. He tells me the agenda of my life. And that is a great freedom. 
Garrett. as well and, and I struggle with some of those um, I would call them idols for myself right mm -hmm. they become sort of the pursuit and not yeah. the product um, but I was curious like I think the Lord gives us little glimpses of those of those various elements as means of encouragement yeah sometimes. so how do you balance that between or maybe it's not a balance but what's the differentiation between that becoming the idol or the thrust and and truly enjoying some of those benefits of the Lord giving you the taste of yeah being a part of his yeah, yeah. How do we discern? There's really good stuff in this, some of these. And I would say, thinking in terms of means of grace versus the grace itself. So there are channels God has appointed for grace. So I think of things like the socialism thing. Relationships are an important means that God uses to deliver his sanctifying grace to us. But they are not the thing itself. Does that make sense? Do you see the danger of substituting? Like, my relationships in the body are... God's care for me versus they're a channel God uses to care for me. They might not always go the way I like, but what's constant is God's grace to me. So channel, like means of grace versus the substance of grace itself. And then I think fruit versus root. So some of these things like the activism or the legalism, it's like you're mixing up the thing that those, those qualities that Peter talked about, the, the blossoming of the flower that, that gospel unforgetfulness produces you're making that the heart of the issue, and you're pursuing fruits instead of roots, if that makes sense. So means of grace versus grace, and then fruit versus root would be two ways of maybe distinguishing what's valuable, sifting out what's valuable here, and what isn't. Great question. I'm going to keep going. Um, the, the next item we're going to look at is what's called counterfeit hopes. And this is um, kind of, again, another list of, of dangers. Um, and what it is, is there's ways that our, our authors say that broader cultural influences can lead Christians to look beyond scripture for alternative pathways to change. So you might, you might realize at this point that you need to change, um, that, we, that we need to grow. And uh, whatever the particulars of our lives, uh, maybe you feel a lot like Keith, maybe it's not quite as bad or whatever, maybe it's worse, but you go, I need to change. I need to keep growing. I need to keep bearing fruit in Christ. I need to get out of some ruts of sinful habits that I've kind of gotten really comfortable with over time. What, what am I going to do? Where am I going to find power to do this? And um, we probably have all at various times felt weighed down with sin and trapped by sin and f frustrated that we can't seem to break free. And the world is, is, is willing to offer um, counterfeits, solutions, counterfeit powers that can supposedly free us or supposedly uh, bless us. So we're going to look at Colossians 2, and, and Greg has pretty recently preached out of this, and I'm sure that going back to his sermons would be a great you know, supplement to what we're doing. But um, Colossians 2, we're going we're gonna to read um, first verses 6 to 8, and then we're going to read verses 9 to 15. And... Um, what, what Paul calls, what we're going to be talking about is what call, Paul calls philosophy and empty deceit in human traditions. So would someone read uh, Colossians 2, 6 to 8? Yeah, Matt. Therefore, as you Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the Thank you. 
So um, just a broad note about Colossians. So you may be familiar with like Galatians, the epistle of Galatians. It's an epistle where Paul is dealing with an error that says we need something beyond Christ to be right in our standing with God. That's justification. That's the problem. We need something beyond Christ for our justification, our standing with God. That's the problem in Galatians. Colossians is a little different. In Colossians, the error is, is more like we need something beyond Christ to attain spiritual maturity, to attain fullness, to really get to the, the heart of kind of spirituality or whatever, whatever we might say. It's much more the sufficiency of Christ for sanctification than for justification is the, the primary focus of Colossians. And so in Colossae, there's people going, yeah, yeah, we're Christians. We believe in Christ, but now let's really hit the afterburners and get into the real stuff, mysticism, angels, all this kind of speculation. And that's what Paul's saying. No, uh you look at verse 6. Like, you received Christ. You're rooted in him. Just keep putting the roots deeper. And that's spiritual maturity. And so what he contrasts that with is these things, philosophies, human traditions, elemental spirits of the world. And uh, what might it mean to be taken captive by these things? Again, these are alternatives to Christ as the engine, so to speak, for spiritual progress and maturity. What what might it mean to be taken captive by these these things? And philosophy basically just means wisdom or love of wisdom. So it's human-generated wisdom. Let's put it that way. Yeah? I think it's just the opposite of Hebrews 12, too, where we are to... Fix our gaze on Christ. Yeah. Fixing our gaze on something other than Christ. Yeah. So it has to do with the attention of our hearts, our gaze, kind of our spiritual vision. So we're looking not at Christ, looking at all these other things maybe in the world. And it's captivating. It's sort of, it has our attention. It has our confidence. And we think that's, where, that's the direction to go, to grow. Well, as we think of the idea of gaze or however, mm-hmm. whichever version you're using means having blinders up to where you never see beyond that focus. Yeah. There's nothing coming into your peripheral vision. Yeah. And we're allowing that peripheral vision to now yeah. invade our thinking and yeah. become very syncretistic with our gospel. Yeah, that's good. So there's sort of a blinders on Christ. But in, in some ways, almost we can have those blinded, blindered vision on something else. Or you could say peripheral vision, we're looking around, we're distracted. But in some way or another, we're being drawn away from Christ by these other things. And it's happening in our hearts. Yeah, Greg. Mm-hmm. It, it binds us yeah spiritually yeah this the domination in our hearts and, yeah in our minds yeah, we, you know, we live in the world and the culture is very um, dominant in our life and mm-hmm. if we're not careful uh, we can allow that culture to creep in and manipulate our thinking if we're not grounded in yeah. reading, you know, reading the word and, and uh, being affirmed Mm-hmm. by the reading of the word. Yeah. We have to know what we, what we believe and why we believe. Yeah, so the culture is offering all kinds of truth claims, sources of wisdom and power. And not everything the world says is wrong. I mean, there's a place for what I would say discerning the messages we're hearing from the world from the grid of scripture, having scripture as the highest authority, sola scripture. It, it discerns everything else. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about kind of uncritically adopting these ways of viewing the world and saying, this is the real power that's going to change me. And I see other hands, but for the sake of time, we're going to need to just kind of keep going. I'm sorry. I love the interaction. Maybe if you want to talk with me afterward, that's great. But here are a few, again, not exhaustive, but a few ways that might look, philosophies. One is my circuit. So the question is sort of like, what needs to, ha- to be, what needs to change for me to really change? Where is this going to happen? First was my circumstances. 
The real problem is the stuff around me, the situation I'm in, the people in my life, the way they've mistreated me, maybe my upbringing, maybe my trials. Maybe it's not about people, it's just it's life trials. And we think, man, if I would just, if I could get this toxic person out of my life or if I could get out of this hard trial, that would be the change I really need. That's a, that is not a godly philosophy. That is a worldly philosophy. It's probably very natural to a lot of us. We're going to talk a lot about that in this series. Those things matter. They influence us. That's not the heart of the issue. My behavior, my real problem is my external behavior, where my feet go, what my hands do, what my mouth says, what my eyes look at. The solutions will probably be focused on rules, external rules and boundaries. Again, there's value in boundaries. But, but if this is, this is, again, a worldly philosophy, like this is the problem, it's just your outward behavior. My thinking, and we might think, well, that sounds pretty good. Um, this one's closer. But again, and kind of to Cliff's point, thinking that isn't, looking at Christ. It's patterns of thinking that we might think, I just need to have the right mindset. Uh, things like, I need to be positive. I need to count my blessings. I need to, you know, life's giving me lemons. I just need to make lemonade. Um, I need to make my bed. I need to wash my face, <laughs> whatever. Um, these are just Christless little bits of human wisdom. And uh, there, there is elements of truth in a lot of these things. They're not totally worthless. It, again, discern through scripture, you can kind of sift out. There is some value in this, but in a different context. But the way that we can operate and cling to them is Christless. It's just these human philosophies and ideas that like, man, if I can just think positive, I'll be a better person. I mean, some people like really get into this stuff and it may affect us in various ways. Finally, self-esteem. The, the, real, the real thing that, that makes me what I am and who I am is like how I view myself and I need, I'm empty. Again, it's that therapeutic thing. Like, I'm empty, I'm broken. I need to be filled. I need to be fixed. Um, and the idea of our, of our problem being an emptiness of heart is, again, a partially true biblical problem, but it's not sufficient. It's not the heart of the problem, ultimately. I think G.I. Packer once said, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth is a whole lie. <laughs> And that's a good one there where it's like there is some truth in this in the right context that there's an emptiness that needs filling. But if that's our dominant understanding of what's wrong with me and what I need, that's missing the heart of it too. What it misses is that you're not just empty, you're sinful. There's something there. Uh, And that's causing problems. And just filling that space with good things won't necessarily suffice. So looking uh, briefly at just real quick reading... Uh, drawing a few thoughts from, from the next several verses with someone, uh, we're going to look at how true, real hope of change is found in Christ. And that's what verses 9 to 15, we're still in Colossians 2. Would someone be willing to read that? And we're certainly not going to be able to exhaustively draw everything out, but I want to hear it and just pull a few thoughts. Yeah, Terry. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Good. And remember, these two are connected. So the whole thing, he's defending the thesis of like, okay, you've received Christ back in like verse 6. You've received him and you've been rooted in him, so now walk in him. That's the, that's the key to spiritual maturity. Not, and, and he's saying, not those human philosophies and traditions, but Christ. And then now what does he do? He like unloads all this stuff about mostly... Some of it is present. A lot of it is on the, in the past. What Christ has done for you, what you have received in Christ. And essentially, like, remember all this treasure chest you have received in Christ. All his fullness is yours. And all these things he's done in the past for you. This is what you're rooted in. And this is the, this is the alternative to those human philosophies as what's going to actually grow us and, and be the means of, of, of progress. So... Um, like, that's why he says in verse 9, for in him. So he just said, like, don't be captivated by these things. Be rooted in Christ. For, because, let me tell you how great Christ is and how many things you have in him. That's kind of what bridges into this, this paragraph. Um, it's obviously way too much for us to unpack comprehensively. But uh, a few things to draw out. One is in verses 9 and 10, fullness. That he says that, that in him is the fullness. This is where doctrine really does matter. Like, the fullness of deity... God, the true divine nature, is enfleshed in a human being, Jesus Christ. He, is, he has all of God's infinite fullness in himself. You have been united to him. It's kind of like what we said in Second Peter, that you have become a partaker of the divine nature. You have the fullness of Christ joined to you. You're in real spiritual union with the one whom heaven and earth cannot contain. Do you still need human ideas do you still need human wisdom to power your sanctification already it's like look we're dealing with serious serious firepower here um and heart change will require nothing less than fullness because what the question is going to come down to is what's my heart going to find its life where is it going to find its joy and uh if we're really going down to the bottom and dealing with our hearts that's going to be the real key question is like the more we see all of God's fullness is in Christ. I will never run out of good in Christ. The more we're seeing that, that will, that of course, like we're not going to really change unless we're seeing that. So the fullness of Christ. The other thing, the next thing we have in verses 11 to 14 is a new record and new power. So he's talking about having been cleansed and forgiven. Uh, and and uh, he talks about our new life. I think that circumcision uh, metaphor and baptism are both metaphors of the of regeneration, the fact that we've been brought to life, which implies the work of the Holy Spirit. God has given us a spirit to make us spiritually alive in Christ. So you have this new power. You have new spiritual life you didn't have before. You have forgiveness, canceling the record of debt, verse 14, that stood against us. So that's been nailed to the cross, not to be remembered anymore. Remember, echoes of Second Peter that... Um, Forgetting your cleansing. You've been cleansed of former sins. You've been forgiven. You've been made alive in Christ. Verse 15. True freedom. Uh, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The feeling of being trapped by sin, if you're a non-Christian, is a very accurate feeling because you are trapped in sin. You're a slave to Satan and you're in the shackles of sin. And you can't be different. You might change what kind of sin you're doing, but you can't undergo any of the change we're talking about. But in Christ... You're not under that dominion anymore. You might feel shackled by sin, 
You might act like you're shackled by sin, but truly you are not. You have a new freedom you did not know. And you have the spirit in you and you can move forward. You couldn't do that as a, as a non-Christian. That's a really important thing to know and to, be, to have as an assurance for us. And then outside of this passage, but looking at chapter uh, 3, verses 5 to 11, you can look at later. And again, Greg preached this more recently. But this sort of idea of, okay, now, now fight a war against sin. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So it's like you've been placed in Christ. You've been given this new record, this new power, this fullness, this freedom. So now it's not like, ah, oh, we're floating in the clouds now. It's like, no, now fight a war in your heart. That's the Christian life. You have been united to Christ. You have all these great blessings. Fix your eyes on Jesus and fight a war. And so it's like, yeah, now that we're a Christian, there are, in fact, new conflicts that we experience. So to be sober-minded about that, Satan and sin have been defeated as masters, but they still harass us, and they still need to be combated throughout all the days of our lives. That's where that perfectionism just falls so short. It's like there's no indication that this fight ends until we're glorified, biblically. Um, so that's why coasting doesn't work. If you're, if you're kind of like Keith and you're like, well, I've been a Christian a long time. I'm not going to think very actively about my, my heart and about my life and try to grow. Just coasting in this world is not going to produce those results. It's gonna, it, it, we're not putting sin to death. Colossians 3.5, it's, it's going to keep cropping up. So we've seen the problem. Just to kind of wrap things up. We've seen the problem is that plenty of time as a Christian, plenty of Christian knowledge uh, doesn't necessarily ensure that we don't get stuck in ruts of sin and we have patterns that we don't seem to see a lot of growth. Um, and the gospel deals with our past by forgiving our sins. It deals with our future in assuring us of a heavenly inheritance. But here's the real key for our class. It also provides power now for a sanctification. Um, and that so-called gospel gap, which is what we have when we're not putting the gospel in that, in that place of like the engine of my, my Christian life will be filled by something else. We looked at some of the ways that it might be filled by counterfeits. Um, we looked at Christ's fullness and how inter, interfacing in our hearts with Christ's fullness in Colossians 2, that is the way to grow. And human philosophies, uh, focusing on externals or circumstances, whatever, is just, is just a false distraction. It's going to captivate us and lead us astray. Now, we're dealing with a lot of big Pieces and I keep saying, we're going to get practical, we're going to get practical, but we're going to get practical. So this might be a lot of like ideas. I hope it's already helpful, but um, we're going to get, we're still kind of laying a doctrinal foundation a little bit. And we're going to get more nuts and bolts, hopefully, as the course goes on. But, but we're kind of laying the big pieces out there that we're going to be working with. Uh, but one takeaway to suggest to you even now is to, to take, basically meditate on the gospel. Just refresh your heart and mind in it. Take some of these gospel-rich passages, like we just saw Colossians 2, 9 to 15, or maybe Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, and stew on it, and maybe even look at patterns and, and do this sort of, be thinking, like, what are those areas where I don't see a lot of growth or I, I'm feeling stuck? And maybe just starting to ask the question of, how is it that seeing Christ this way and what I have in Christ might answer these problems, might start giving me some clarity? Hopefully, as the course goes on, we'll, we'll draw that connection better and better. But already, start meditating and praying. God, where do you want me to change, and how might the gospel fill that gap? So, for the sake of time, that'll be it. I'm over already, but glad to interact with you um, if you have questions or thoughts But let's uh, afterward. But let's pray. God, we thank you for how richly you've blessed us in Christ. You've given us his fullness. 
And we pray that we would, uh, we would once again have our confidence renewed that all that we need is in him and that our hearts would be open to him in a way that, uh, that, that roots sin out from the deepest place and continues us growing in the likeness of him for our joy and your glory. Um, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.